content warning for today's episode, there is discussion of murder and suicide as it occurs in this film. Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are starting a new series. We are talking about two gentlemen with the same last name. We are exploring two directors whose works we've we've enjoyed, but that they've just got films that we just haven't finished watching. Uh, we are talking, at, and they each have very distinct styles. Such distinct styles, the two of them. And this is the Anderson and Anderson series. It sounds like a law firm. It, do- it does. So that would be Wes Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson. And Paul Thomas, of course, is going to be the subject of today's film. Yes, today we watched Boogie Nights. Back when sex was safe, pleasure was a business, and business was booming. An idealistic porn producer aspires to elevate his craft to an art when he discovers a hot young talent. (laughs) This is one of those weird cases where this is a highly enjoyable, watchable film Mm -hmm. from a director who is still figuring out what the fuck he's doing. So I'm the one who had seen this film. I had not. And when you think of Paul Thomas Anderson today, because this movie was 97. Oh, yeah. I think There Will Be Blood and The Phantom Thread, which are amazing films. Exquisite, gorgeous. And meticulous. Mm-hmm. And this film is all those things, but it is in a completely different lane. And it's, I feel like it's really evident in the color palette more than anything else because his films that come later I feel uh they're very they can be colorful but they're so muted like he uses color brilliantly here and there but it's so like it's here it's just like we're going big and we're going bright and that's just what we're gonna do we're gonna throw it all out there much has been made of pretty scuzzy stories about Paul Thomas Anderson coked up walking around Hollywood back in the mid 90s and late 90s. Sure. This feels like he's on cocaine. <laughs> well, I mean, his characters are on a lot of cocaine too. So Yeah. Uh, that's not unfair. This feels like a much younger, not fully developed version of what we get with something like a There Will Be Blood. Oh, absolutely, cuz it's all, you know, experience. And I mean, that's 10 years later. It's a decade later and he has like finally honed in on his his style in a lot of ways. Uh, it's been, it's very much been refined. But that style is still here. It just looks very different. It is, and that's what's odd about it, especially having never seen this movie before. Mm-hmm. Is coming into it and both being like, wow, this is very early for you, but also seeing all of those trademarks mm-hmm. that he is known for. All of the, you know, keeping a static shot while characters are off screen. Sure. You know, the long sweeping shots and the one takes, which he's also pretty well known for. I think the biggest thing to me is people have talked so much about like he's he's like our Kubrick. And visually, yes. But also, we just got done watching Nashville a little while ago. Mm-hmm. His writing is very much like an Altman film where it is this giant group ensemble, all with these different stories. He loves an ensemble, but 
unlike an Altman film, everything being intertwined makes sense. Yeah. No, no. He he fully fleshes out his stories and has them like fully written. And it's it's a cocktail that works really well. <laughs> oh, it's fabulous. I mean, this film is awesome. I I enjoyed it. I had only seen it the one time and I saw it in the early 2000s. I'm trying to remember what the context was of me seeing this because I, <laughs> I would have been too young when it came out. Sure. So yeah, I would have had to wait till I uh, didn't have uh, anybody paying attention to what I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. And I, I mean, it's it's rated R for every reason. We'll kind of get into that. But like this, this movie tests the limits of what you can get away with for an R rating from the MPAA. Sure. <laughs> In so many ways. Yeah. And then recently I watched all of uh, The Deuce. Uh-huh on HBO, which is all about the porn industry. And that show I found very interesting. And I saw the influence of this film on that. Yeah. In good ways. I, I felt they did. Um, they expanded in, you know, a wonderful modern way in that show. But it's like, oh, I could definitely see the influence from from this movie, which is great. And definitely like all of P.T. Anderson's other films. Mm hmm. This movie is not about the porn industry in the 70s. He uses a hyper-specific setting sure, and a vibe in order to tell a bigger story. In that really weird way, this is a workplace drama? And a family drama? In, in the way that workplace people can't, when in a tight-knit workplace, yeah. those people become your family. That's what this is. It's just that their workplace is really fucked up. So fucked up. <laughs> and it's not just that it's fucked up because it's porn, because I'm not trying to like demonize the no. porn industry at all. We're very pro-sex work. But definitely during this time, it was a really fucked up place and very toxic. And so like we're going to demonize that for sure. <laughs> we just demonize toxic work environments. I don't care what they are. This film is about porn at the end of the day. But it's through the lens of this very specific group of people that work together. So you can say that this is a workplace drama. It's interesting. Anderson said in an interview, and I found this really an interesting concept. Mm -hmm. He gave a long answer about what he thought this film was about. Quote, it's about finding a family to tell you the truth. I know that sounds kind of preposterous because it's about porno. That's a really kind of weird thing is that you want to say, well, it's about the pornography industry. And then you want to quickly say, well, not really. But I think ultimately the thing I really liked most and I really focused on is that it's a lot of people searching for their dignity and trying to find any kind of love and affection they can get. And they find it in really fucked up and twisted ways. But they get it, you know, unquote. That's fair. I, I don't I, I think that's all fair. I, I will say this. He is not a guy who looks for deep meanings in the films he writes. He seems like a, a writer who kind of pushes the story, comes up with the characters and throws it on, on the page. Mm -hmm. And he figures out the meaning later. I don't disagree. I, I feel, based on what we've seen, is that he's, he just writes what he feels. Exactly. And then he examines why he did that. Why did I make that choice? Oh. Yeah. Like, it's almost as though his writing is his own personal therapy. I've found that to be true with some of the choices I've made about some of my longer term PTRPG characters. It's like, oh, I made this choice. Oh, 
and I'll think it's because of one particular reason, but when I examine it further, it's like, oh, that connects to this and this and this, which is, oh, personal, uh, oh, oh, fuck. (laughs) Oh, Diana just did some self-therapy. Great. Lovely. (laughs) Yeah. So I, that, that feels to be what happens with some of his work. Here's an interesting story that ties right into that. Oh, okay. After filming the scene between Eddie, before he's Dirk, and his mother, actress Joanna Gleason was talking to Paul Thomas Anderson and asked if the material was reflected in his own relationship with his mother. Anderson went dead silent and could not answer the question and just like got very reticent all of a sudden. And Gleason put her hand on his shoulder and said, you don't have to forgive her. Yep. That's fascinating to me. And, and you bringing that up, I don't know that that's a thing that's ever been examined. He's, he's always also been, and especially in later years, he's been a much more private person. Sure. Like, he talks about his films. He does publicity. But sure. he is not overly outward about talking about things. He's just not like a super public social media. He's just not like an everywhere guy. No, and I believe, you know, getting roasted for that in your young age will teach you, hey, maybe I should just not be in public that much. <laughs> sure. And, you know, we, we know him to have a very public uh, spouse. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, like whatever he has to do to remain healthy and create good work, you know, good good on you for boundaries. Healthy boundaries. That's fine. Um, also, he as because, yeah, I, I've heard him in his interviews for his more recent films. Um like he's not a dick about anything. He'll answer all your questions. Like he's he's not a closed book, but it's also just like, and I'm done. Yeah. My personal feelings in life and things are not up for discussion. I would much rather just talk about the movie. Thank you. About, we're going to talk about the work. <laughs> yeah. Although that makes me want to know later on if he feels comfortable to hear if that is super true and what inspired that. I'm not saying he has to, but boy, that would be a fascinating read. <laughs> that would be interesting. I mean, it, it 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 doesn't have to be mom. It could have been dad. But it based on that interaction, it sounds like it's definitely pulled from a real life experience. Yeah. And maybe in that moment, he's just he doesn't want to reveal who the person that actually is. Maybe it's not his mom and his relationship with that person is fabulous. But it's based on something that actually happened to him. Yeah. Which is fair. And that's that's his to keep. So that's fair. This is an insanely good movie. Uh, and is. two and a half hours that doesn't feel that long at all. No, there's there's some exposition that could be cut. There are some scenes that just go on too long where it's just like, I feel like they're trying to build tension and we already know it's there. It's all, We're already uncomfortable. We already know what's happening and we don't need it. Like we don't need the extra layer there of time. So you could probably shave about 15 minutes out of this from those things. Um, but like, I don't want to pull any of the oneers. The oneers are great. Like the opening shot is amazing. It's, it's, it is a textbook example of like, you want to introduce every single person in your film without like in the best way pop like this is the this is amazing this oneer establishes every character that really truly matters it tells me who they are what the hierarchy is what their shit is and why i care we know their baggage immediately that's wild that's my wife (laughs) (laughs) like oh my god and then like 
uh, and then to get another oneer again, like he pulls it a couple times. Then we get another oneer when William H Macy's character leaves to then then goes and murders his wife and who she's sleeping with, and then himself. Uh-huh. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it's amazing. It's it's, it's all a lot. <laughs> it's a lot, but it's amazing. It's yeah. so well done. Talk about making a big splash in the industry. <laughs> so, like, I mean, clearly we're 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 very pro the writing and we're pro the directing. Yeah, because well, they're they're so intertwined. We will we will deep dive into it, but first, let's talk about the budgets. Oh gosh! So the budget for this film was fifteen million dollars. Okay, yeah. Which, based on the cast and based on all the visual stuff we're doing, that makes sense. It grossed forty three million one hundred thousand dollars. That's not bad. This is a hard film to sell. Oh, super hard. The subject matter is going to make it hard for people to see. And yet this movie did gangbusters. I remember vaguely, you know, this movie was in the zeitgeist. It was a big deal. Oh, we were talking about it for years. And of course, it had a huge push in the college years for a lot of people our age. Like this was one of those... If you like movies, you have to watch Boogie Nights. <laughs> well, there was that, but then there was also the whole, we were too young to see it when it came out. So it yeah. became one of those, you have to come back around to this one. Like, you have to go see this film because we couldn't see it when it came out. And that leads us straight to our director and writer, which is a fun thing we get to do for this series. Because they're the same for all of them. Yeah. Now, I will say... For our other director, there will be some additional writers. Sure. But they're the lead. They're head honcho. But for Paul Thomas Anderson, he does it all. Yep. He is a total package. So we are going to talk about his credits this one time and one time only. Before this, he had a feature film called Hard Eight. Ah. So this is not his debut picture, but this was the picture that put him on the map for everyone. Mm -hmm. After this, he created Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, there Will Be Blood, The Master, Inherent Vice, and Phantom Thread, mm-hmm. along with doing, more recently, a lot of short and long-form music videos with artists like Haim, Fiona Apple, who he dated at one point, and Radiohead and Tom York most recently. Mm-hmm. Upcoming, he is working on an untitled project that is also only known now as Soggy Bottom. Yes, he does not release the titles of his projects until they are near completion. Pretty much. So we usually don't find out the title of his projects until we get the trailer, mm-hmm. which I also kind of love. We do know this, some of the stars of that movie, though. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to wait because we're going to get to enjoy that with everybody else. What do we think of the directing and writing specifically for this film? Uh, we're pro. Pro. Very pro. Pro. I mean... <laughs> I think there's a little some places where you could shave some stuff off. Yeah. But there's not a lot of, I mean, I feel bad saying this, but there's one character that, like, there's one character who you could completely cut out and it would be fine. Which character? The one character I would cut just for time is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Scotty J is a little superfluous in terms of the story we're telling. Exactly. I understand why he's there because that guy is always involved. He's always there. That guy is always in this group. Look at any workplace drama, comedy. This type of person is there. Always. (laughs) Always. So I understand his position. And it's Philip Seymour fucking Hoffman. We love him. 
Mm-hmm. So it has nothing to do with his performance. It has nothing to do with, with him at all. I love him. I want him in everything and I miss him. But his character, his business, I would cut. Uh, that that's one way I would shave some time. And, and then some of those, the tension pauses where I'm like, we already know this is tense and this sucks. Let's, let's, let's cut these seconds out people. We don't need this. (laughs) That's, that's how I would shave my 15 minutes out of this movie, but I don't, I'm not mad. So um, I'm pro, I'm very pro. I think what's so great about his writing is how much you, you've mentioned already, how much story is there. Mm-hmm. that's what's key is that he's he's got this sumptuous feast of visuals mm-hmm. he's got these really fascinating characters but we've seen all too often with sure. all sorts of different directors that sure. they don't have the story to back that up and prop mm-hmm. all of that up mm-hmm. and this is the thing that makes him so great is that he also manages to have that story mm-hmm I think that is also probably a factor in why it takes him so long to make things. Sure. Because he's very deliberate in how he's going to create that story. It reminds me of Fincher a little bit. Fincher is so meticulous. And Paul Thomas Anderson is not meticulous in the same way. But he thinks about things. thinks about a story in that way. Like, it has to matter. I think one of the things that's so great about our story is that everybody has an identity. Uh, even even our secondary characters have an identity and we understand what their deal is, uh, especially as we get additional time with them, like Roller Girl. Yeah. Even like in every scene we have with these people, something else gets revealed. Like it's so well doled out that we get this additional information like about Roller Girl. And I think she's one of the ones that's the most interesting because, okay, you meet her and you're like, this girl's always on fucking roller skates. Like, what the hell? Oh, and she she fucks with the roller skates. Okay. Yeah. And, you, and then you realize, oh, she's in high school. Yeah. Like every time we have a scene with her, we realize something more like, oh, like she's just been like passed around. Like, this is not great. She wants more of it. She wants to get her GED. She wants that. Like, she, like it's so cool what happens with her like i mean like it's not great but like i like the way like the way her characters developed and revealed throughout the movie i love because in in so many other places that character would have just been like well she's roller girl and that's it we wouldn't have found anything else it's just she's important she wears roller skates all the time that's it who cares and wildly enough we have a happy ending (laughs) which is bizarre After everything we go through, after lots of tragedy, lots of darkness, and not like a perfect ending, Mm -hmm. but an ending where we feel like everybody seems like they're at least going to be okay. I wouldn't say anything's happy. I think the only person who gets a happy ending is Buck. I'm so happy for Buck. He gets exactly what he wanted. Yeah. He gets his store, which is great. And he, he gets a family, which is also pretty cool. I think our ending is really more of closure on this yeah. on this snippet of time we were witnessing. Like it's like oh, it's like a TV series almost where you're like oh, I I spent time with these characters and now I'm leaving them knowing that they're going on and okay, like yeah. I'm le- I'm just leaving them right now and like yeah, some of y'all are probably gonna die or something bad's going to happen, but like, I'm just not going to be a part of this, but I have closure on what has just occurred. 
Yeah, very true. I, I think that I think we have closure. Which again, that's another Anderson thing. It's a really good way of telling your story. Like I don't have to have a happy ending. I also don't. We don't need to avoid a tragic ending. If a tragic ending is the best one for your character, then okay, let's go for it. But he gave us a tragic ending to somebody in the middle of the movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which, is, which I also thought that's a great place to put that because usually that would be two thirds of the way for the film. Nope. You put it like right in the middle. He is so good at making unexpected choices feel very natural. Oh, he's, and it's so great because everybody's all happy. Go lucky. Everybody's partying. Oh gonna have some murder suicide happening if if i have more critique for him it's a little bit more on the directing side and Mm -hmm. it's very little i mean god Mm -hmm. it's a gorgeous film yeah and he's amazing at you know taking these different shots it just feels rough around the edges and that's because he's still figuring things out some ways but here's the thing this is him inexperienced i know that's wild that's obnoxious that's fucking obnoxious. Because then you think of there will be blood and just be like, yeah, okay. If this is what he was doing 10 years before while he was figuring shit out. <laughs> asshole. You fucking asshole. What a little fucking prodigy. <laughs> I mean that with respect, you asshole. The film was based on a 1988 short he created called The Dirt Diggler Story. It was okay. a mockumentary shot very similarly to the mini documentary that we see in the middle of the film. Mm-hmm. In that short, Robert Ridgely, the actor who played the colonel, played Jack Horner. And Michael Stein, the customer at the stereo shop with Buck near the beginning of the movie, played Dirk Diggler. Okay. The original script for this film was 300 pages long. I believe it. And it was cut down to 180, which sounds a whole lot like Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. He is also, I'm pretty sure, known to be a guy who writes like a six-hour film and then has to cut it down. Mm-hmm. He used the story of porn star John Holmes as an inspiration for Dirk's character, primarily a 1981 documentary called Exhausted, John C. Holmes, The Real Story, as a reference for several of the scenes in the film, especially those interviews that we see in, in that one sequence. He almost verbatim stole the lying about being able to block and edit sex scenes. When Dirk says that to the camera in front of the director, that is actually something in the documentary that John Holmes did in front of one of the directors, who then was like, no, he can't. (laughs) Because John Holmes was so fucking strung out and high. Okay. That is one thing that's fascinating to me is that these were not things that they sort of came up for comedic effect. These were actual real things that he put into the film as part of his research. Which then makes me appreciate it because it's like, this isn't just for comedy, it's for texture and to make it even more believable, Hmm. which is wild because it doesn't feel believable at all in the moment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Dirk's first character in the film is named John and Dirk mentions coming from the Marines in that scene, John Holmes had spent time in the army. Mm -hmm. But when we see the scene pitching the detective serial to Jack Horner, Dirk criticizes John Holmes' Johnny Wad character. Well, look at the character Holmes character, for instance. And look, I just... Tell me. Well, I don't like seeing women treated that way. This guy, he plays Johnny Wad. It's always about slapping some girl around or whatever. It's not right. It's not cool. It's just not sexy. I mean, it's not sexy like it should be, Jack. This guy's more... And that's very clearly put in the script to show that they are not the same person. It's a comparison point. 
So he specifically didn't want Dirk to be John Holmes. He didn't yeah. want this to be like, I'm making a story about that. He wanted it to be a similar story arc. Okay. And the climactic drug deal sequence is directly inspired by the Wonderland murders that happened to involve John Holmes and gangster Eddie Nash. They made a whole movie about that separately. Okay. He did his research. Anderson intentionally avoided having his characters change in any substantial way in the film. Quote, everybody is the same. Maybe if there's a change, it's like one degree. Normally you see a 90 degree change in a movie. To me, they're all pretty much the exact same people as they were at the beginning of the movie. Unquote. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I don't hate it. Some change a little more than that. A little. I don't think it's that they change, it's that their circumstances have changed at that point. Very true. Buck didn't change, but no. his circumstances had changed. So for him, the appearance of change is huge. That's what he wants. That's what he cares about. But, yeah. But like he was still him, like, but like in a, in a good way. I'm not like yeah. shitting on him. I forget everybody's name. And then like his lady, like for her, like she'd come a mom. So like, yeah. yeah. Things had changed for her. The John C. Riley character, nothing had fucking changed for him. Like, nothing changed for him. Nothing changes for Dirk. Well, the difference for him is he had actually been knocked down a peg. Like, he realized, yeah. like, oh, I'm not hot shit, and I'm not going to be hot shit. Like, I can be hot shit for a moment, but I will not be hot shit forever. That's that's what changed for him. I have a role to play. Mm -hmm. And then for Amber, it was like, not, like, I'm never getting my kid back. No. Like, that's gone. What a heartbreaking scene. Like I can get I, I can get Dirk back, but that's it. I, I will never have my actual son, but I can at least have this family. Yeah. That's by all this bullshit circumstance has at least landed with me, and at least I have that. Yep. Wow. He'd been burned from his debut picture, Hard Eight. And so he had some big principles he was gonna lay down by making this film. Okay. Fun note, the film's title for Heart 8 was originally Sydney, which was the name of one of the characters, but the cut and the title were changed out of his hands because it was his first picture. Okay. So for this film, he very specifically chose to put the title of the movie on a sign so that they could not make, an, make any change for it. Fair. But coming into this film, he gave himself ground rules. He told them, this film will be more than three hours and it will be rated NC-17. And the producers went, okay, no, <laughs> like, absolutely not. It's new line. They're going, this has to be something that we can sell. So they gave him a choice. You can have one or the other. It can either be more than three hours or it can be NC-17, but you don't get both. And Anderson pushed back. He tried to pull it on him. He's like, fuck you. I don't care. He insisted this movie will not have mainstream appeal, period. Fair. And the producers held their ground long enough and said, uh-uh, we're, we're not giving you that choice. So Anderson, putting some thought to it, said, okay, I will take the R rating. I will make it longer than three hours, and I will take the R rating as a challenge. Sure. Can I make a movie about pornography and get it an R rating? <laughs> and you know what? That's what's wild is he pulled it off. Well, and it's not, it's not three hours. I know. That's the funniest part. It clocks in 20 minutes shorter than his three-hour goal. <laughs> his final cut... <laughs> Came in under. That's hilarious. Uh, he was he was ready to hold firm and just say, absolutely not. I do not care, which is very interesting. <laughs> 40 total seconds of film had to be cut to get it from an NC-17 to an R rating. Mm -hmm. And there were also a bunch of other story cuts as well. 
couple of things that were filmed. There was a much more graphic version of the murder-suicide, which was deemed too disturbing. And honestly, I appreciate that because it makes much more of an impact the way they filmed it. The way it is now, I mean, like, it's graphic enough with the William H. Macy visual, which I had forgotten about when we watched it this time. But, like, seeing what we see is perfect because we didn't see in the bedroom like in the oneer, we don't, we don't, we never go in the bedroom. No. So we should never go in the bedroom, which I love. Like that choice is great. Cause it's following him. him. It's following little Bill. It's not about his wife. Yeah. It's about, it's about his reaction to what's happening. Yeah. And it's so much more horrifying. Oh, well, it's, it's, uh, it's more impactful. Yeah. Cause it's his choice because then when he, when he makes um, his final decision, that's more shocking. Cause you don't think he's going to do that. No, you have no clue that's like, coming. Well, it's not out of the blue, but you're just like, Oh, cause mm-hmm. you didn't think he had that in him. Like him killing his wife and she's sleeping with sure. All right. You're sick of this. Sure. Yeah. But him doing that to himself. Oh, mm-hmm. didn't think he had that in him. There is a scene where Becky Barnett calls Dirk and reveals that her new husband is abusing her. Dirk, while going to go after her, wrecks his Corvette on the way to help. That whole sequence is cut, but it explains why the car is fucked up when they go to the drug deal. Okay. (laughs) And why they need to fix the Corvette. And there was an additional sequence with Rahad Jackson where he runs back to the house and as the police arrive with helicopters, he comes out shooting in a blaze of glory and dies at the hands of the cops. Like, none of that matters. It doesn't, although just based on that character, God, that's a brilliant scene. <laughs> I mean, that sounds fun. Yeah. If the movie was about something, if the movie was only about Dirk and his yeah. escapades, then fine. But that that sequence has no business in this film. Yeah. And like, and the sequence we got with that drug deal, that drug bust thing, it was too long as it is. That's mm. a place where I would cut more. Like, I, I like parts of it but it's too long as it is yeah and good news for film lovers most of those are included as special features on the special dvd sets of the film hey still buy dvds as you are able and your space allows you can you can go watch these scenes you can probably find them on youtube somebody's probably uploaded them when asked how he came up with the name dirk diggler anderson said he wasn't sure but he just wrote it on an index card when he was 17 years old and of it he said quote I mean, I think a good porn name has to have two G's in it. It just looks good and it sounds good for a good porn name, you know? And a K is pretty important, too. It helps. Not that. <laughs> Having the name Dick as a porn star is just, a, is, it's just easy. It, it is wild, like, how close it probably is to some super porny name, but, like, just off enough. Like, it's not Dick, it's Dirk. Yeah. And Diggler... It doesn't sound like an actual porn thing, but it's it's very 70s. <laughs> like now we just put the thing in the fucking name and don't even try. But in the 70s, it was like, we, we try to try to make it a little softer on yeah. the edges. The film was widely criticized by many stars, directors, and producers of porn in the 70s for inaccuracy. Okay. The biggest complaint anybody had was that Dirk would never have been able to become this international superstar because filming porn was illegal in the late 1970s. Fair. There was one exception was a former porn actor and now a highly respected director in the industry, Paul Thomas. This is funny. He judged the film, quote, pretty accurate outside some details. Fair. I appreciate that they're like, with the exception of this one guy, this probably wouldn't have happened. But also that's... 
this is the story we're telling. Suspension of disbelief. Yeah, well, and this movie, like a lot of his movies, this is the actual good use of the word Fantasia. This is a fairy tale story. This is not a real story. Yeah. In order to simulate the fake porn dialogue, Anderson adapted actual dialogue from porn films from the 70s. I love it. He did it specifically so no one could say it sounded fake. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) Anybody came up to him, he'd be like, I stole it from these three films. Oh, well, okay. (laughs) He's a smart cookie. See, he's very analytical and very methodical about his story, which is why his films are so good. And from a visual perspective, the movie was filmed entirely in 35 millimeter. That explains the color, the grain. And he's well known for being someone who exclusively likes to film on actual film stock. He does not like to do digital. To get the 70s porn reel feeling, they projected the reel-to-reel onto a screen Uh and then filmed that that. with the 35 millimeter. Oh, cool. They did the same thing with the videos. They played an actual VHS tape on a television, turned all the lights off, and filmed with a 35 millimeter camera. I like it. It's brilliant. And it works so well. It works really well. You get all of the visual acuity, but Mm -hmm. the feeling of those things, which is so different than what you get in a lot of movies. Oh, yeah. No, no. It's effective and very simple. Yep. I say simple, but like that's that's not overly complex. No, but still smart. 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 Practical. Practical. It's practical. God, he's practical. I like a practical effect. I will take a practical effect over some CGI computer magic any fucking day. It's true. That's very true. It's, Diana, it's the theater in me. I can't help it. <laughs> and that gets us through our director and writer. We're very pro. Very pro. Now we need to decide, are we pro this cast? So we will start off with Marky Mark Wahlberg playing Eddie Adams and Dirk Diggler. We have never talked about Marky Mark on this show. Wow. Okay. I mean, why would we? This is not a guy whose movies we are like particularly interested in must see. I mean, I think this is the movie. <laughs> like, this is it. Before this, he was in Renaissance Man, The Basketball Diaries, and Fear. After this, Three Kings, The Perfect Storm, 2001's Planet of the Apes, Rockstar, 2003's The Italian Job, I Heart Huckabee's Four Brothers, Invincible, The Departed, Shooter, We Own the Night, The Happening, Max Payne, The Lovely Bones, Date Night, The Other Guys, The Fighter, Ted, Pain and Gain, Two Guns, Transformers, Age of Extinction, The Gambler, Ted 2, Daddy's Home, Deepwater Horizon, Patriot's Day, Transformers, The Last Night, Daddy's Home 2, All the Money in the World, and Scoob. And upcoming, he is going to be in Uncharted, the video game remake, and the newly updated The Six Billion Dollar Man as Steve Austin. I forgot about Rockstar. That movie was so good. <laughs> I really liked it. He was great in that. I, I had a thing for that movie for a while. It's good. It was enjoyable. What do we think of Mark Wahlberg in this film? He's perfectly cast for this film. I mean, he really is because you there's not there's not a snub on Mark Wahlberg. But you need someone who is attractive, but not like model hot. And yes, he did some modeling, but not someone that you're like, they were chiseled from marble. <laughs> like you just like you can't have a Chris Hemsworth. You need someone who also is an everyman. 
who has an everyman quality. He's got a good body, but he's not like uber cut here. He's not like the over pumped up guy here. That would come before and a little bit later. So yeah, so he's kind of got that he could be the next guy next door quality to him. Um, And so that works in his favor. Yeah. Yeah. And so you believe that he would be like, I got a big fucking dick and I know how to use it. And so that that would make him be like, oh, fuck everybody else. I'm the shit. (laughs) That bravado that comes out of him from all of this. Like you have to buy that and you wouldn't buy that from someone who is just like you just can't take your eyes off of them. Yeah, that's very true. Marky Mark is a very attractive person, but he just doesn't do that for, for me. Marky Mark is perfect because his whole acting style is like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm a whispery guy and everything's so weird, you know? And that's perfect for Dirk. You know what he is, what he's so good at? He is Charlie's Chocolate Factory. I got a golden ticket. Uh-huh. That's what he is. He's like, I got the golden ticket and I'm just so happy to be here. That's who he is. Yeah. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not shitting on that at all. No, no, no. He he has a very specific lane that works really well for him. <laughs> oh, and also, and he was fabulous in The Fighter. So, I mean, you know, he does have some range. Yeah. I, I have seen so many of those movies. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, because they're like, they are big deal movies. The other thing I think about, and this is interesting, is that there's a story arc here that reminds me a little bit of Barry Lyndon. But that he actually pulls off that roguishness. Some of it's the cocaine acting. Sure. Like some of it's that motivation, but. But here's the thing. He has the big dick to pull it off. Exactly. You can't discount that. You cannot discount the fact that he has that, whether he has it on, on him or whether he's just thinking about it, he has that motivation. Sure. That's huge. <laughs> Literally. Okay, like he's not wearing the the prosthetic for most of this film. We no, know that. No, okay, like we do have to talk about that. But that's just the energy that his character has. Like I have a big dick. Like objectively, I have a big dick. Yes. <laughs> so fuck all of you. <laughs> uh, he's very good. He's very very good. Yeah. Despite anybody's misgivings about Mark Wahlberg as an actor, because he's not a guy with the most range in the universe, though he has lots of charisma, he is perfect for this movie. Yeah, he's great. He was hesitant to take the role because of the huge commercial failure of Showgirls. Fair. Totally fair. But like many actors, he read the script and immediately knew he needed to take it. It's a great, it's a great script. I have to imagine on page, this would be just as compelling a read as like mm-hmm. a normal novel. I think so. As is the legend, Mark Wahlberg was allowed to keep the 13-inch prosthetic penis that you see at the end of the film. Because mm-hmm. yes, he does have the huge dong. And yes, you do see it. It's a penis. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember the first time I watched it, I was just like, I'm never going to see it. And it's like, okay, it's at the end. Yeah. And then there's, there's an interview. I think it's with Conan. Where they talk about it, but they never say what it is. <laughs> and it's like 10 years later. And they're just like, but you have that, right? And he goes, yeah, but it's like all shriveled up now because it's latex. Yeah, it was it was made out of very degradable latex. And so, like it degrades like I have it in my safe. And like they joke about how like I love how we don't even have to say what it is. And everybody knows what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm pretty sure that was Conan. And yeah, like it's just okay like cool but i 
I appreciate that it's in there one, because even to this day, we still don't get a lot of foot, like male frontal nudity when ladies got to be naked all the fucking time, uh, which is bullshit. Like I'm fine with the fact that it's a prosthetic. It's a very good prosthetic Mm -hmm. because you know, being who I am just as, as just the person, like, where's the seam? I want to know, <laughs> I want to know where the seam is and it is objectively a very large penis while also being like, all right, whatever. Looks like a penis, but like not in a creep, but not in a creepy way. It's no, not, it's not creepy big. We're like, that's a big penis. Yeah. <laughs> How many more times can I say penis? Penis. Uh, Wahlberg has a slightly complicated relationship with the film. He doesn't hate it. Once in an interview, though, after becoming a devoted Catholic and father, which he is now, he stated he hoped God would forgive him for poor career choices with this at the top of the list. He later said he was joking. Okay. And that he does not regret the film or the role at all. I mean, it made him a movie star. He would not have the career he's had without this film. No. But he did say, I I wouldn't be able to explain this movie to my kids. Can't do that. Fair. (laughs) Pretty tough for me. (laughs) This would be one where you just just have to trust me on this. You're not allowed to see this movie till you're much older. (laughs) Like, I'm amazing. Uh Uh-huh. And the movie is amazing. But unless you want to see me fuck some people... You can't watch this. Pretty much. You just need to know that. <laughs> so, yeah, he's just like, I've changed my life a lot. And Fair. I probably wouldn't do this movie now, but I don't hate that I did it then. <laughs> well, if he did it now, he would be the Burt Reynolds character. So This is true. That's okay. That's okay. I am fine with being like, uh, I, made cho- I, I would make different choices now. Yeah. <laughs> that is okay. But you can't, you can't denounce the thing that made you famous. No. When you made it with your eyes fully open. Yeah. And it's not like he was taken advantage of. Like, I understand just being like, I can't explain this to my children. (laughs) And you're so good in the movie. You are. You are. Objectively good. good. Who could have been better? Interesting. There are a lot. Okay. Leonardo DiCaprio. No. No, he would have been horrible. He was offered the role initially. He loved the script, like many. Fair. But he had already signed to Titanic. Thank you. And he actually suggested Mark Wahlberg for the role. That makes sense. They're like buds. Who could have been better? Joaquin Phoenix. He was offered the role. Okay. But he was concerned about portraying a porn star at that point in his career. Okay. And declined. Fair. And of course, as we know, Joaquin is now a frequent collaborator with Paul Thomas Anderson. So then some other names. Jason Lee. Oh, interesting. Christian Bale. Oh, sure. Maybe a little too hot. That's where we get in. I mean, okay. Christian Bale can be a chameleon. We've talked about that. Christian Bale is first and foremost, a character actor. He's just in a really fucking gorgeous package. That's true. Which is why a lot of people tend to discredit his character acting ability. Yeah. He's just so fucking amazing. I love Christian Bale, but no for this. Ben Affleck. Here's the thing. Ben (laughs) Affleck got so big, so quick. Like, he's, he's just a tall man-man. <laughs> he could play the John C. Riley role in a hot second, though. No, he could not. Really? Not convincingly, no. There's a depth to that role that he didn't have. Fair, 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 fair. I gotta think on that one a little bit more. Okay, who else? Matt Damon. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm just gonna say this. Well, I have always thought Ben Affleck was hotter than Matt Damon. Matt Damon is the superior actor, just as a fact. While Ben 
clearly has some writing and clearly directing chops. Matt has not directed, yeah. but he has written. They both have some well-earned trophies for that shit. So that's where we go with that, with that partnership. Yeah, well, they, they parlayed that into a little movie that came out the same year as this. Yeah. Um, Matt, yes. Ben, no. That's okay. I was wondering if, if Matt was going to be in this list. I was like, yes, Matt, Ben, no. Sorry. Bye. And finally, Ethan Hawke. Uh, no. 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 He's too mousy. Yeah. Those are some interesting names. I understand that. Like, Joaquin Phoenix, totally understand. He would have been good. He would have fit a John Holmes profile, where it's somebody who's unconventionally slightly attractive, but also very much in a 70s porn star look. Sure. He would have looked like a 70s porn star. Sure. But if we're trying to fit the, the type of mold that Marky Mark fit, which guy next door, very good looking, but not like chiseled from marble. Uh-huh. Not Thor. Matt Damon, all fucking day. Yeah. All fucking day. Matt, you're hot. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Like, we're good. Like, I'm not shitting on you, man. Though you've been putting your foot in your mouth. You need to shut up. He needs to shut the fuck up. Like, he just needs to stop talking and be good in movies. Like, please. Oh my <sighs> God, dude. Oh, you need to go be in timeout. Okay. So much timeout. You're okay. Go be in timeout. All right. Just hire a publicist who talks for you. Donate some money. Go sit in timeout. Mm-hmm. Bye. D- just oh don't God. say any more words until your movie comes out. But honestly, Marky Mark, Marky Mark. I'll pick Marky Mark over all of these. He's too good. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not mad about Marky Mark. So, All right, next. Let's talk about the guy with the most complicated relationship with this film. Oh, great. Burt Reynolds playing Jack Horner. We just talked about Burt Reynolds in Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Okay. He is a screen legend. I will not deep dive into his credits. Okay. And the other reason I won't do that is because he has a very very contentious relationship with this movie. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, what do we think about Burt Reynolds in this film? I thought he was good, but I don't know what if this is him or the writing, but I don't see a turn in him as much. I would have liked to see a little bit more softness with him in the moments where he is being compassionate. Because there are there are a few moments where he is being loving towards Amber. And then when he's forgiving Dirk, when he's clearly trying to comfort Roller Girl, like I don't see softness from him at all in those moments. And that is where we should have seen an, almost a different person. Because I understand everywhere else is like, I have to be a boss. I have to be this person. But that's in the moment where he has, where I feel like we should have seen dad because he's the dad here. And that I don't know if that was an acting choice. I don't know if that was a writing choice or directing. I don't know where that is, but that is where it would there. That was a missed opportunity for me. I don't know. I think it's firmly within Bert. I okay. mean, we're going to get into a lot of that. Okay. For all of the, the acclaim that his performance received specifically from this film, because by far and large, the biggest thing people talked about at the time was Burt Reynolds. Mm-hmm. And like, wow, what a dramatically interesting role for him. I don't know that Burt Reynolds is doing a whole lot different than he ever does in a movie in this role. Okay. I think he's playing typical hard-edged, but with a slight heart of gold Burt Reynolds. And none of the charm of Burt Reynolds is there. Occasionally there's a twinkle, but it's all the hard Burt Reynolds and never any of the sweetness. And... I'm going to say, based on the other stuff I know, I feel like he Walter Matthau'd this movie. 
maybe not as hard as Walter Matthau did in Hello, Dolly, but I feel like we've got a similar thing going on here where he did not like the fact that he was in this movie and his performance suffers because of it. Okay. He hated the idea of making a movie about pornography, like despised actively the idea of being in a movie about it. Okay. He turned down the role seven times and kept saying, I'd be selling out. I'd ruin my reputation with the role. Anderson kept at him because he desperately wanted Burt Reynolds for this film. And when Reynolds told him angrily off for like what was to be the final time, Mm -hmm. Anderson convinced him by saying, if you bring this attitude to this role, you'll get an Oscar nomination. And he did. Okay. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. His only ever Oscar nod. Wow. Okay. Anderson saw something in what his performance would be that would get acclaim and recognition. Like he just, he saw him in the role. Mm. But after Burt Reynolds saw the rough cut of the film, he completely regretted making it. He fired his agent for recommending the role to him, and he refused to participate in any promotion for the film. Mm. He won a Golden Globe. He was a frontrunner for the Oscar. Most rumor that because he refused to promote the film, that's what lost him Best Supporting Actor that year. He was considered to be neck and neck with Robin Williams. Oh, Robin Williams wins. Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting is so much better. So much better. Okay, here you want to know why? Okay, aside from that's a, ooh, that's such a good year, 97. Ooh, I, yep. I distinctly remember this year. Ooh, <laughs> that's as good as it gets. Fuck. There's a lot going on. That's when Jack Nicholson got his last one. Oh my god. That's such a good fucking year. Here's how why he lost to Robin Williams is that Robin Williams showed depth. Mm-hmm. That we had never seen from him before. You know, we've seen the 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 manic from him. Yeah. And we saw something, we saw this peak into the mania that allowed, like that made us all just so captivated by him. The script for Goodwill Hunting is great and beautiful. Yeah. And I would probably say now that Boogie Nice is a better script, but Goodwill Hunting surprised us in a way that was probably why it won. Burt Reynolds could have gotten that. It, he still probably would have lost. But boy, it was close. But if he hadn't brought this anger here, if he had like those moments that I just talked about where he became dad and showed us that switch that I'm I can flip the switch and that like, yes, I am a bulldog and I'm going to get us the best fucking porn movie alive from you. And if you're going to try and fuck with me, I'm going to, I'm going to hunt you down and you're not going to, I'm not going to let you fuck with me. But if you fuck with my people, I, I'll kill you. That scene with Roller Girl is fucking amazing. It's amazing. But that moment when he gets back in that car, we should have seen, we should have seen him like comfort her. We should, that's, that's such a missed opportunity for both him and the movie. And that, that could have, that could have clinched it. He had none of that energy for this film. No. And if he if he didn't have the disdain for the project, I could see another actor fighting for that moment. This is mine. This is my kid. Yes, it's a very fucked up relationship, but this is this is my person. It goes back to that whole family thing that he talks yeah, exa- about. Yeah, exactly. Like this is my person. They just got attacked. We need them. We need this moment. Give me it now. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Okay. He Walter Math out it. <laughs> fucking did and not it like again it's not that level of like 
turned down because he he clearly invested in the role. He showed up and did he showed up and did the work, but he didn't dive into it the way he needed to. He didn't invest. Yeah. He sold his Golden Globe for about $20,000 later on at auction because it meant so little to him. As long as he puts the $20,000 to a charity, then I don't care. He also, at best, strongly disliked Paul Thomas Anderson. At one point, he threw a punch at Anderson for what he perceived as disrespecting him or threw punches. The first assistant director, John Wildermuth, recalled that, quote, Bert got so frustrated he pulled Paul outside into the backyard and started yelling at him like a father, you know? You fucking little punk kid, don't tell me what to do. One of the other minor characters, Tom Link, said, all of a sudden we saw fists flying. We saw some fists flying for Burt Reynolds. I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but it was like he was trying to punch our director in the face. Reynolds also apparently got in a scuffle with character actor Thomas Jane. Oh, jeez. And in the audio commentary, and I don't like this because it's unfounded, but P.T. Anderson and Malk Wahlberg imply that he may have been on drugs. Hmm. I don't know, because that's not something Reynolds has ever been, like, known for widely. No. Reynolds, to his credit, has been very civil about working with Anderson, even though he does not like him in later interviews. Okay. He said, quote, personality-wise, we didn't fit. I think mostly because he was young and full of himself. Every shot we did, it was like the first time that shot had ever been done. I remember the first shot we did where I drive the car to the theater. After that, he said, isn't that amazing? And I named five pictures that had the same kind of shot. It wasn't original. But if you have to steal, steal from the best. Fair. He thought this was a young punk kid who thought he was too full of his own shit and got mad about it. Hmm. He claimed that Anderson offered him a role in Magnolia. And all signs point to, he was like, I'd love you to be in this film. But Reynolds, in the, again, most civil way possible, said he thought that he'd filmed his one movie with Paul Thomas Anderson. And mm-hmm. He was fine with that. <laughs> he also said that he researched the role by visiting porn sets and talking with porn actors. He claimed that it made him want to wear rubber gloves and take a shower after. And that every porn actor wanted to know how to get a SAG card. Yeah. Which the second part is fun. I'm like, yeah, that's just a Hollywood Fair. thing. The first part is like, Fuck you, Burt Reynolds. <laughs> what is his hatred for porn is off the charts. <laughs> yeah, it's bizarre. Frustrating. Frustrating. Mm-hmm. Also, he did his first day of shooting in an inexplicable Irish accent. Nobody knew why. Uh, by the second day, he changed it back to his normal voice. Mm-hmm. So thank God. <laughs> Who could have been better? We have some options. Warren Beatty. Oh, oh. Yeah. We're not the biggest fans of Warren Beatty, but... No, Warren Beatty is a complete fucking douchebag. But all he would have to do is be himself for this movie. That's what I'm saying. Sidney Pollock. Done. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm fucking done. Sidney Pollock would have brought all of the rage, and he would have given me that scene. He would have given me that fucking scene. And he also would have been funny. I just think about Eyes Wide Shut, and a movie that's kind of a mess... But Sidney Pollock is so fucking good in it. Sidney Pollock is amazing. He can be hilarious. He can be dramatic. He can do it. He can do it all. And he's also a director. He fucking knows what's up. He attended the premiere and stated in interviews publicly he regretted turning the role down. Good. After seeing the final product. Good. 
I get it. So many people were afraid of this movie because I, it was pornography and showgirls and, and all showgirls that. tanked. Showgirls was shit. Okay. I, yeah. Someone needs to remake showgirls. Remake <laughs> showgirls. Here's the thing. I've watched showgirls. I've watched it in the <laughs> way. And also like, okay, let's watch this objectively. Objectively. There's a good story there. It's Paul Verhoeven and he doesn't care about story. <laughs> no, but the concept is fabulous. Yeah. Because it's a, just a total backstabby star, you know, climb the ladder story. Yeah. That's great. It just happens to take place in Vegas, which is also is just a crazy, crazy place. Because we always put things in Hollywood. Put it in Vegas. It's a different fucking world. Do it. It's a star is born with drugs and boobs. Lots of boobs. Hello, boobs. People want to see boobs. So much boobs. Lots of boobs. Go for it. Uh-huh. Uh. Also, who could have been better? All turned it down. Albert Brooks. No. Harvey Keitel. Yes. Oh, he stole my heart. <sighs> Love that man. He'd have the same scuzziness, but Harvey Keitel can be soft if he needs to be. I know that. Hello, the piano. Oh, I forget about the piano all the time. It's so good. <laughs> That's your apartment. That's your apartment. It is my apartment. God, that movie. Oh, I love it so much. I Yeah. Dave and I have had this conversation. It's a little sidebar. Anytime anyone mentions the apartment, I just go, oh, it's the best movie David has ever made me watch. But anytime I mention the piano, David goes, oh, it's the best movie you've ever made me watch. So good. Best movies we've ever had to watch for anything ever. It's just like, there's nothing wrong with it. Well, Moonlight's up there for me too. Yeah, you talk about that one more. I love it so much. It's more culturally relevant right now. It's a beautiful movie. It's a beautiful movie. Bill Murray. Oh, that would have been fun. That would have been a different movie, but that would have been fun. And Jack Nicholson. We're fans of Jack. I do like Jack. He's got to be well-written, and this is well-written. Jack could have done this. So, okay. I still want Sidney Pollack. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you why. He would not have pulled focus. Never. Jack would. Yeah. That's my only slight against him, especially at this point. In 97, Jack would have pulled focus. I mean, I'm not going to be mad if Jack Nicholson is playing that role, but... <laughs> he would have done a great job, but he, the movie would have become about him. A little too much. And I'm I'm guessing that's part of why he didn't do the movie was not just because it's about porn, but because I'm not the main character. That too. Uh, knowing Jack Nicholson, he's like, this isn't my movie. Why it's would I It's probably, do it? it's not all about me and I'm not getting paid enough money. Which is honestly part of the problem with Burt Reynolds being in this role. Well, here's the thing. Burrells is no fucking Jack Nicholson. Sorry, guy. No. No. Like, you are several tiers below a Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, same tier. Y'all are on the same tier. Okay? You're both dicks. <laughs> You're both dicks, and you fuck everything. Jack can act, though. Jack can fucking act. <laughs> Burt Reynolds can be in this movie for whatever he was paid. Jack Nicholson can't. No. Jack Nicholson in that position wants 20 million dollars it's not it's not his film no here's the thing i'm sure if they're like we'll pay you 20 million dollars to have this position in this film and he'd be like all right whatever i don't care show up for a couple days i'm done who cares if he loved the film enough to do it he would do it but at this point in his career because after because after this point he stopped doing anything he did all as good as it gets and then it was just you know a handful of movies every once in a while to pay the bills i'm done well, I will say, as frustrating as it is, Bert's fine. Like, he doesn't ruin the film. No. It's just, God, it could have been so much better. We we could have gotten, we, we could have had some, we could have had so much more magic. Really? Someone who is magic is Julianne Moore playing Amber Waves. She's always magic. 
Now, we have talked about Julianne Moore before with the not magic Kids Are All Right. Oh, yeah, that movie was trash. A movie that we absolutely hated. The kids are not all right. In this film, wow. The kids are also not all right. <laughs> well, that's true. She's so good in this movie. She's fabulous. Um, she has the hardest role. Yeah. Because you instantly feel bad for her. You do. But then you also have to kind of hate her and still love her. You have to go through all those range of emotions because you have to be like, wait, oh my God, that was your kid calling. Oh my God, you miss your son. Why are you still fucking doing coke and porn if you want your child back all the time? Oh, this is what you're good at. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is where you get love and affection. Okay, now I understand. Okay, cool. Yeah. Oh, you're stuck in this life. That's that's why you're doing it so that you can support yourself. Okay, cool. Um, I love and support you as a person in this film. And then it's like, oh, you're you're addicted to this. Like, it's not just coke, but like you are also addicted to this. And then like, then she's talking about Dirk as her son that she's having sex with, which is weird and fucked up. But it's also like, this is this world. Yeah. And then she has that scene with Roller Girl where it's just like, they're just doing coke back and forth. And it's just like, can I call you mom? Can I call you mom? And that's she, she just wants to be needed. I love you, mom. I want you to be my mom, Amber. Are you my mom? Just, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you if you're my mom, okay? And, and you say yes, okay? Are you my mom? Yes, buddy. Yes. Yes. And here she's needed. And it's like, that's why, that's part of why you stay. So it's like, she has this hardest role and it's so well done. It's so, it's so good. This movie has this amazing thing that it does where you will be in the middle of what feels like a pretty buck wild comedic scene mm -hmm. and on a dime you will go into tragic territory like they're on coke you're cutting back and forth to like them at the studio singing shit and it's all fucking stupid uh -huh. and then all of a sudden out of nowhere will you be my mother and you go whoa when yeah. did we make that turn <laughs> yeah and it happens so often and the fact that julianne moore has to be in the majority of those scenes mm -hmm. and pull it off and she does the other thing is she is consistently in character there's never a point when she leaves that amber waves character behind even at court like she she tries to hide it but she's still in it well that's the thing that's different for her than i think anybody else she is amber waves yeah that is who she is yeah for everybody else it's this thing that they're doing to get them to the next thing. Yeah. And that's not, I don't think that's true for her. No. Amber Waves is who she is. And not in a bad way, but like that is who she is. And I think the only time when she's lying to herself is when she's at court. Yeah. And you understand it, you sympathize with her, but that's where it's like, yeah, this isn't, um, no, this isn't, this isn't where I am who I am. Because one of the things that's interesting is, you know, she's she's having sex with Dirk for film. And then it's like, oh, no, 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 finish. Because she's enjoying herself. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay. And then later, a couple bunch of scenes later, she's brought him up there to do coke. And she's, she just wants to feel close to him. Yeah, she wants, she wants to share her world with him. Yeah. Because she wants that son. <laughs> well, it's it's not just this. It's, it's, it's the closeness. So, like, yeah, yeah there's some, like weird like it's just a weird overlapping it's, it's all messed up and you get that though it's very messed up and there's all those different like weird 
layers and creepy and gross and but then some of it is just purely that the love and affection you want to bond <laughs> the, yeah the pure like love and affection bond and just like that's what's happening and so and that's where like that's where i'm like she really is amber waves that's yeah. who she is as like a true person yeah i don't even i don't even remember what her pre they say it one time and it's when the kid is calling for her yeah it's just like mm. But, but that's the, that's part of why I think it's so key is that that's the only person who ever says that name. Mm-hmm. The person looking for like someone looking for so-and-so. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Because that's how much it doesn't exist in her life at all. God, that's also a testament to good writing. I know. <laughs> so good. But see, but like it's so, it's so subtle, but it's so important. And yeah. That's a testament to Julianne Moore because a lesser actress could not pull that off. No, she is her. It's her. She is so fucking good. Yeah. The main inspiration for her character was Seika, who is a 70s, 80s porn actress frequently involved with John Holmes. And who could have been better for this role? Marissa Tomei. Okay. I understand that. I don't want it, but I understand it. Yeah. I don't want it only because it's just like Julianne Moore is such an amazing fucking talented actress. Mm -hmm. Thank you for giving her this role. Yeah. <laughs> for getting to do so much with it. Next up, the himbo to end all himbos, John C. Riley playing Reed Rothschild. <laughs> I love John C. Riley so much. We have not talked about him for this uh, for this show before. How is that possible? I don't know. We've seen a lot of recent movies where sure. we've talked about it in passing, but we have not discussed him in a role. So his credits quickly. Before this... Casualties of War, We're No Angels, Days of Thunder, Shadows and Fog, Hoffa, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, Dolores Claiborne, and Hard Eight. Okay. After this, The Thin Red Line, Never Been Kissed, Magnolia, The Perfect Storm, The Anniversary Party, The Good Girl, Gangs of New York, Chicago, The Hours, The Aviator, Dark Water, A Prairie Home Companion, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story, Step Brothers, Cyrus, Cedar Rapids, We Need to Talk About Kevin, Carnage, the character of Steve Brule with the Tim and Eric crew, Wreck-It Ralph, Life After Beth, Guardians of the Galaxy, The Lobster, Sing, The Little Hours, Kong Skull Island, The Sisters Brothers, Stan and Ollie, Ralph Breaks the Internet, and Holmes and Watson. I love him so much. I am never disappointed when I see John C. Riley in the film or when I see his name on a cast list, I am always happy to see him, whether he is playing a comedic role, which is typically what he does. He's typically playing a comedic relief, especially in a dramatic film. But even so, he has the dramatic chop. Yeah. And he is such an amazing character actor. And you see all of that here. And he looks and he's also one of those guys. He, he has always looked 40. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not it's not shitting on him at all as a person. He's just one of those persons who has always looked very mature. Yeah. He's always looked like he's 40. So now that he's in his 50s, I'm just like, how do you look so young, man? It's very weird. <laughs> but he can like here, you can tell like clearly you're very young here for us. And it's just like this is it's all there. He's clearly always this is always there. And it's amazing. It's so funny to watch like all of the Ricky Bobby shit that was going to come later in this character. It's all there. But with a dramatic edge. Mm -hmm. It is this wonderful thing of 
let's take a very silly himbo character uh-huh. and now put him into a tragic life. Yeah. And what is the logical extent of all of that? Mm-hmm. Because he even gets to the point where he's like, holy fuck, I'm in way too deep. I thought this was just broing out and we've gone way too far now. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm just doing porn. It's when we get to the drug deal scene that you're like, oh, shit. He was just going along to get along. Mm-hmm. Seriously, he was just going along to get along. Like, oh, my bros want coke. All right, let's go get coke. Whatever. Let's get, let's get coke, man. Like, I just want to be a magician. Like, that's really <laughs> he to be a magician. He's so sweet and wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's literally all that was going on with him. And it's, um, and I love it. It's amazing. It's so good. And it just, yeah. I mean, you you just watch this and think, yeah, I think Talladega Nights. I'm like, it's one of my favorite things in the world. Like that. And I think of him in Chicago. And I'm just, I just like, every time I see him, I'm excited. I'm happy. I'm so happy to see John C. Riley in anything. I would watch him do almost anything. Except porn. I do not want to see him in porn. No, thank you. Sorry. He is a perfect foil for all the stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And this perfect just like filter for all the bullshit Dirk is struggling with. Mm -hmm. And then let's talk about an even more fun character. It's Don Cheadle as Buck Swope. Talk. Okay. Talk about baby. (laughs) (laughs) Another person who's always looked 40. I always think of Don Cheadle as being 40. We have also not talked about Don Cheadle on this show before. And I looked. We haven't done it. That feels so wrong because I we, know. I, we've wa- you know, watching all of the Marvel stuff. Like we see his face all the time. How do we not talk about him? It's because all these movies we have seen or some of them we haven't gotten around to yet. Fair. But- This was the first one. So before this, Hamburger Hill, Roadside Profits, The Meteor Man, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, Devil in a Blue Dress, Rosewood, and Volcano. After this, Bullworth, Out of Sight, Mission to Mars, Traffic, The Family Man, Swordfish, Ocean's Eleven, The Assassination of Richard Nixon, 2004's Crash, Hotel Rwanda, After the Sunset, Ocean's 12, Talk to Me, Rain Over Me, Ocean's 13, Hotel for Dogs, Brooklyn's Finest, Iron Man 2, and then all the subsequent Marvel movies that he's been in, Flight, Space Jam, A New Legacy, and he's also done a ton of TV recently. He's an amazing actor, and god damn it, he is the most lovable character. Very much like the John C. Riley character. He's like going along to get along. But the difference is he has a very specific goal. Where John C. Riley's character does not. Just is like, well, I want to do magic because I'm like, I like magic. But he's he's just gonna go whichever way the wind blows. Uh-huh. Buck, it's like, no, I need to make money. I need this amount of money. I need to do this because I need to get that so that I can open my store because I know everything about stereo equipment because I can sell anybody that like this is that's his passion. So he is a very focused thing. He's like, I'm just doing this until this. It's that and then like the wild costume change stuff. I remember a joke about it on a podcast like a long mm. time ago. It's one of my like f- just favorite comedy podcasts. But it's just like the Don Cheadle character being the one who's always in this wild different costume because sure. he's so he wants to be the talk of the party. Sure. But he's so not that guy. He's not that guy. And like because of who he's been around and what he's done, because he's in porn, he's always thought that, well, I have to be like the snazziest guy in the room. That's what's going to get me ahead when it's not. (laughs) That's never what it was going to be about for him. And he's trying to figure that out. And nothing ever goes right for him. Yeah. Ever. (laughs) Until the very end. 
mm-hmm. which is such a perfect payoff. I mean, he does he does also get Jesse St. Clair, which is awesome. <laughs> yeah. He gets to be married to a very beautiful lady, and they're very happy together. And then he gets to open a stereo store, and you're like, yay, you paid it off for a very sad character. <laughs> he earned it. It was very slow burn, but it's like, all right. It's so earned in a wonderful way at the end of the movie. <laughs> for, for a character who's ostensibly comic relief, mm-hmm. that's pretty fun. That was great. Uh, he's very good. Buck's character name is a nod to Putney Swope, a satirical film from Robert Downey Sr., in which a black man is made the president of a Madison Avenue advertising firm. And who could have been better? Samuel L. Jackson was offered the role. No. 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 And I love Samuel L. Jackson. I do too, but this is where Samuel L. Jackson lacks subtlety. The subtlety that this type of role requires, Samuel L. Jackson lacks, especially as of 1997. He had become the badass motherfucker guy. Yeah. There's no, there's, uh, uh, once that happened, there was no rain in that end. There, there's been no rain. Now he's, now he's badass motherfucker and Nick Fury. Those are his only two modes. And you know what? He's, he's earned that. He has earned that. That's fine. I have no problem with that, but we needed a different lane. And that was Don <laughs> Cheadle on a better race. I, I will say this. Jackson can do shades of those different roles which sure. he has been tasked with doing. Jackie Brown came out this year and he does a shade of badass motherfucker, but it is very much, he's got these lanes and mm-hmm. he sticks with them and good for him because he makes a shit ton of money doing it. I mean, he's earned it. Yep. Next we have Heather Graham playing Roller Girl. Again, an actor we have not talked about on this show. Yeah, I, that one I believe. That one makes sense to me. Before this, she was in License to Drive, Drugstore Cowboy, Twin Peaks, the television series, Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, Six Degrees of Separation, Swingers, and Nowhere. After this film, she was in Scream 2, Lost in Space, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, Bowfinger, From Hell, The Hangover, and The Hangover Part 3. What do we think of Heather Graham in this movie? Well, I already talked about what I really liked, what happened with her character. I didn't like what happened to her character, but I thought it was really amazing that that a character in that position we got that much for her yeah normally you wouldn't i think she's great yeah i just think she's great i think she does a great job and it's frustrating because this did create massive issues for her career sure yeah that's where i'm like it makes me go like i want to see more of heather graham but i don't know in what because it's a weird role and like it's <laughs> and i d- totally get it because it's like she's really hot She's gorgeous. Yeah. But one of the things about her not having a bigger role is that we didn't see as much performance range from her. We saw her naked and we saw her raging out on a guy with her roller skates. So that really puts her in more being naked or horror films, which is kind of what she did. Yeah. I I think there is a lot of nuance that you see in her performance. Absolutely. I think casting directors would not have paid attention to it because culturally in 1997, we weren't actually thinking about that shit. No, we were just like, oh, she doesn't mind showing her boobs. So and she's hot. So let's just do that with her. This movie comes out now. She would be in line for all sorts of new, interesting roles. Sure. And also, if they were pushing her more in the horror route, we have more nuanced horror coming yeah. out. So uh, it wouldn't just be show us your boobs and then murder people. You get to have a story with your boobs out. Yeah. It's okay. Because to me, like the most fascinating part about that scene, especially from her standpoint, it's not when she explodes. 
it's watching her face during the VHS part of it, mm-hmm. where you're watching through the camera and seeing all the phases of like, yeah, I'm sexy, I'm hot. All right, let's do this. Mm-hmm. This isn't going great. No, uh-uh, mm-mm. And then, okay, get the fuck off of me now. And clearly shaking. Like, this mm-hmm. is bad. And you see all of it. Like, that's such good acting. <laughs> and the fact that people would not recognize that for her career she couldn't get substantial roles for nearly a year after this. She briefly considered taking a part in a softcore film because that was the only thing she could get. That's just horrible. In fact, Mike Myers approached her with the offer to do The Spy Who Shacked Me, and that actually restarted her career from mm-hmm. there. And since then, Graham has completely distanced from this film. She has refused to be involved in any reunion or retrospective, doesn't answer questions about it, does not talk about it. There's no indication from what I've seen that there was any issues on set for her. It's it's more of she needs she's distancing herself because being attached to it has hurt hurts her career. Yeah, that's fair. And it, it's just like, God damn it, because she's really that good and really gives a performance of like, what else can you do? Because this is pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. She was initially not considered for the role because she had never done nudity in any films. And I think Anderson was likely looking at okay, I, if people haven't done nudity, I don't want to get into it because we're doing a movie about porn. So like, I want people who clearly are comfortable. Sure. But her agent actually called on behalf of her to see if she could read for it. Mm-hmm. She was that intrigued by it. And her very first scene was the nude scene with brand new roller skates on the casting couch. I mean, yep. it's, it's a hell of a first day. I know. Hello, here's my body. <laughs> <laughs> who could have been better? Mm. Gwyneth Paltrow. No. She actually was in his debut film, Hard Eight. Oh, okay. But turned this role down. Drew Barrymore. No. And Tatum O'Neill. Tatum O'Neill would have been interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know that any of them would have gotten what Heather Graham got, though. I would have liked to see Tatum O'Neill in a different type of role. Maybe in Melora Walter's role? No. I do think there's another woman missing from this film. That's entirely possible. Well, one woman on the crew. One woman should be on the crew. Yeah, I I well, I was about to say, we need the stereotypical butch lesbian on the crew. <laughs> because we we have the Philip Seymour Hoffman heartsick gay. Yeah. We we need the stereotypical 70s butch lesbian. Tatum O'Neill could have been really cool as that role. <laughs> that would have been really cool for her to play. Interesting. That's fair. She's so good. She deserved a lot better from this movie. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about somebody who had a blast making this movie, apparently. That is William H. Macy playing Little Bill. Of course he had. I don't. Here's the thing. I don't think William H. Macy doesn't have a blast anywhere he goes. I know. It's because wild. he's Bill Macy. I just. I think he just has fun wherever he goes. I do not believe we have talked about him on this show before. Holy fuck. <laughs> Jesus. William H. Macy is a character actor legend. We don't need to go through all his credits. You've seen him in at least something in your life. You have, because he's William H. Macy. You know who the fuck he is. Yeah, pretty much. What do we think of William H. Macy's little Bill? I love him. So sad. I Like, he's just so pathetic. Ugh. But, like, not in a, like, he's, he just feels so pathetic. And he's just downtrodden. And I love it. I just, I love it. Like, it's a really horrible sudden ending to his character. 
Sure. But in a perfect way, because it is coming at the point that it does. The immediate next thing is now it's the 1980s and the worm completely turns for the rest of the movie. Like everything goes fucking south for all the different characters after that moment. Mm -hmm. So it is a big tonal shift for his character to just suddenly do something horribly violent like that. It's a huge story signpost. But he's just, God, he's good. He's so good. His agent actually discouraged him from reading the script for the role because he thought it'd be bad for his career. Oh, sure. Macy read it anyway, loved it, and immediately signed on to the role. Sure. Because <laughs> he's William H. Macy. He's William H. Macy. He's, he's a character actor, so he's there to just do whatever he wants to do. He's a character actor, and whenever he gets a character that's as good as this one, he's just like, uh-uh, I'm all in. <laughs> During the shot where his wife is getting fucked outside the apartment complex, Macy flubbed his line, saying, My fucking wife has an ass in her cock in the driveway, Kurt. All right? I'm sorry if my thoughts are not on the photography of the film we're shooting tomorrow. Okay? Okay. No big deal. Sorry. All right? Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Anderson loved how flustered it made little Bill sound so much that he kept it in the film. And by God, I laughed so hard at that. It's so great because it is, it's a perfect, it's just a perfect, like, view of, like, yeah, of just like, blah, 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 blah. She has an ass in her cock. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I'm just like, clearly this happened, like, that's how it feels. Like, clearly this happens all the time. My wife, like, he's he's married to a porn star. Like, this is what she does all the time. But, like, she's off duty. Could you not fuck other people? Could you not do it in the middle of the of fucking driveway? The driveway. No, no, but, but it's not even that. But it's just like, honey, I know you fuck people for money. Like, that's fine. <laughs> like, that's fine. But, like, you're just doing it to do it at this point. And now... You've got people watching. Like, really? And then, like, I love that the conversation is like, don't embarrass me. <laughs> he just, like, walks away. It's so, it's, it is so funny. But you know what? You know people who are married in the porn industry have real life conversations like this. And that is amazing to me. They've got to, they got to navigate those boundaries. And how do they, how do they want to deal with that? I, I love it. I love it so much. I'm going to go ahead and reveal an Arpon here, which is that his wife was played by Nina Hartley. And Nina Hartley is one of like the top five all-time porn stars. She's okay. like one of the most famous porn stars of that generation. Awesome. She brought him to one of her sets so he could prepare for the role and observe. Okay. And he recalled at the rap party that Nina gave one of her films to everyone as a cast gift. <laughs> his was a copy of Nina Hartley's Guide to Anal Sex. <laughs> Adorable. One of her many instructional films. I will mention, without getting too much into the, the really rough details, but the character is loosely based on a porn star named Cal Jammer, whose girlfriend was having a secret relationship with a male actor and with actress PJ Sparks. Hmm. He tragically committed suicide and ended really badly, but it was a direct story that Anderson pulled in for the character. Okay. All of this, that's the thing, is it all goes in wild tangents, but he's grounded it in some kind of reality, which is why it never feels like it flies off the rails. Hmm. Okay. Then we have Melora Walters playing Jesse St. Vincent. Mm -hmm. Before this, she was in Dead Poets Society, Beethoven, Cabin Boy, Ed Wood, Hard Eight, and Eraser. After this, she's in Magnolia, Rain, The Big Empty, Cold Mountain, The Butterfly Effect. She was on Big Love on television. Love Ranch, The Master, The Lovers, and she played the homeless woman in Venom. 
okay. Very much a character actress and also an early collaborator with Anderson in a lot of different character roles. Mm-hmm. She's good. She's not in the movie that much, but she is enough of a serious role to warrant being here. And like, mm-hmm. she gets one of the most buck wild moments in the movie where she tells Dirk Diggler that she can't wait to fuck him on screen. Yep. <laughs> That's very funny. There's some wonderful sweetness. She's a really sweet counterbalance to Buck. She's just a, a really sweet counterbalance to the bravado of the male porn stars. Yeah. Because she comes out and then we, that's when we first meet her. She's like, I can't wait to fuck him on screen. And then when as we spend time with her, we realize like, oh, she's really like soft spoken and sweet. And then she takes a real honest interest in Buck. And then you think that like, oh, well, like she just wants to do a video. Like they're going to they're going to do a movie together and like whatever. But no, it's just like, I really like you. And and they form like this true relationship and then they have a child together. And it's just like, oh, like you're just a person. Yeah. Like that's great. And there's no like weird intentions and there's nothing else capping on. Like this, this is just this is your job. That's cool. And it's great. And so. It was really unexpected because you were expecting something weird or bad to happen with her. Never comes. No. She's just a person. We need it. You need just a little bit of softness and a little bit of funny. You need a little bit of all of that. So this movie just doesn't devolve into tragedy. (laughs) Well, Well, the thing is, those people exist. And so one thing I do really like about our smattering of characters is that you have these people who are like, no, I'm here. I'm going to do this. I'm doing porn to do porn. I'm doing porn to make money for this. I'm doing porn because it's what I'm doing today. I'm doing porn because I love doing porn. (laughs) Exactly. So you have like all these different people. And I think it was really good how clearly we have that. And finally for our main cast, Philip Seymour Hoffman playing Scotty J. We have talked about him before for mission impossible three of all movies. Though we will mention him again in this series, Mm. so keep a look out there. He is a favorite of Paul Thomas Anderson, of course. And what do we think about him in this movie? He's adorable. Superfluous as this character may be, he does it so well. Yeah, even though I said I would cut him, I only would cut him because he's superfluous. Yeah. But he's adorable because he's Philip Seymour Hoffman. Like... He's he's so funny and he is that guy. That guy is always there. And then it is so tragic because you do see the moment after that guy does what that guy does. Because every time you see that guy, it's always the oh, holy shit. He's been a weirdo and you would follow the main character away. Instead, you watch Dirt go away and you stay on Scotty and you watch Scotty get in the car. And then you're like, oh, God. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be honest here. I have been that guy at times. Mm -hmm. I have been that awkward guy. And boy, howdy, do you beat the shit out of yourself when you are that guy? Yep. And it's hard. And seeing that is just like, yep, that's exactly what that's like. And Mm -hmm. wow, he does it so well. He does it so well. I'm a fucking idiot. I'm a fucking idiot. I'm a fucking idiot. I'm a fucking idiot! I'm a fucking idiot! Fucking idiot! Fucking idiot! Fucking idiot! The role was written with him in mind. Sure. Hoffman was totally shocked to learn that the subject of the film was pornography. (laughs) He just thought he was going to play this really goofy, weirdo character. And who could have been better? Jack Black. 
Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Who else would you possibly cast in this role? I wouldn't say he would have been better, but if like for whatever reason he couldn't have done it, I would have been totally fine with Jack Black being that character because he would have he would have threaded that needle very well. Both of them would have done just about as amazing a job. They would both be great. Because Jack Black has he does have the chops. He's just not given the opportunity. Nope. He could do it. He could fucking do it. I love Jack Black. Yes. And I miss Philip Seymour Hoffman so much. We do. We do miss him. <sighs> Arpons. We got Louis Guzman playing Maurice T.T. Rodriguez. Okay. He's amazing. Alfred Molina playing Rahad Jackson. That was so unnerving. <laughs> it's like, wait. Fun part. He had never heard Jesse's Girl or Sister Christian before because they weren't hits in the UK. Oh, that's funny. So he spent three days listening and playing them repeatedly until he knew them forward and back and could sing them at will. That's fun. And to stay oblivious to the firecrackers, he used noise-canceling earpieces in that scene. The rest of the cast is actually flinching at actual firecrackers going off in that studio. I like that. (laughs) And who could have been better? John Turturro and Sean Penn. No. (laughs) I I reject this. We have Joanna Gleason playing Dirk's mother. Done tons and tons of work, but you'd best know her as Rachel's boss at Ralph Lauren, Kim Clutzy. Laurel Holloman playing Cheryl Lynn. She was Tina Kennard on The L Word. Yep. Greg Lauren playing the young stud who finds the lady coked out and overdosed. He is the husband of Elizabeth Berkeley. Oh, yeah. Ricky Jay playing Kurt Longjohn. He's the amazing close-up magician we've talked about for Tomorrow Never Dies mm-hmm. and appears in Deadwood. John Bryan playing one of the award ceremony band members. He is a very well-respected film composer. He worked on Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Mm-hmm. Michael Jace playing Jerome. He was one of the main cast members of The Shield. Philip Baker Hall playing Floyd Gondoli. He is one of Paul Thomas Anderson's go-to characters, and he will get a much bigger mention with Magnolia. Hmm. Thomas Jane playing Todd Parker. He's, of course, a great character actor known from Deep Blue Sea, The Thin Red Line, and The Mist. Michael Penn playing Nick the Engineer at the studio. He is the composer for this film. Okay. Robert Downey Sr. playing Bert, the studio manager for the music studio. This is the father of Robert Downey Jr. directed a whole bunch of counterculture films. And he is credited as, parentheses, a prince in the credits of this film. Veronica Hart playing the judge. She is another famous porn star from the 80s. Her actual custody issues inspired Amber's custody issues for this film. And she is playing the judge in that scene. Hmm. Jack Riley playing the lawyer. He was on the Bob Newhart show and did the voice of Stu Pickles on Rotogratz. And finally, John Doe playing Amber's husband. He is the L.A. punk rocker from the band X, and he had a role in Roadhouse. Hmm. That gets us to trivia. Trivia. Jeff Lynn of Electric Light Orchestra initially refused to let the song Livin' Thing be used as the end credits for this film as he has a problem with sex and violence in movies. He requested a screening, and he loved the movie so much he decided to let them have the song. All right. Okay. However, despite being named after the 1977 hit song by Heatwave, Boogie Nights does not appear in this film. This is because Heatwave's lead singer, Johnny Wilder Jr., is a devout born-again Christian, and he refused to allow it to be used. He stated that the song is about dancing, not pornography. Hmm. Contrary to all rumors, there is not nor will there be plans for a Boogie Nights 2. Paul Thomas Anderson does not do sequels to his films. Fair. 
The firecracker scene had some different inspirations. Paul Thomas Anderson's father created a character named Goulardi for a local TV show where he grew up and sometimes set off fireworks on air. There is also a scene in Putney Swope where a character sets off a firecracker and everyone turns to look at him. Anderson actually called Downey Sr. to ask him if he could use it and praised that scene specifically, and Sr. allowed that to happen. According to William H. Macy, when they filmed Dirk winning the Golden Phallus Award, they had 100 extras in their own 70s clothes. However, they were not informed what the subject matter of the film was, just that Burt Reynolds was in the film. Oh, okay. They were told to applaud after Jesse St. Vincent announced Diggler as the winner. Walters then said her line at that moment, I can't wait to have his big cock in my pussy and my ass. <laughs> the audience went dead silent. And half of the extras immediately walked off set, never to return. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they quickly had to get more extras, which mm-hmm. caused several hours of delays. And when they resumed, Paul Thomas Anderson, learning his lesson, carefully explained what was going to happen in the scene. So nobody else walked away. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and of course, Bill Macy's just there laughing because that's Bill Macy. Mm-hmm. During an early screening, a group of teens cheered when Little Bill grabbed his gun. Anderson immediately thought that he had ruined the scene because that was not the reaction he was looking for. Mm-hmm. They kept cheering when he shot his wife and the lover, but then went immediately silent when he shot himself. And Anderson knew at that moment he got the reaction he wanted. Fair. Because they were happy. Like, finally, he's going to take a stand against his wife. Just like, Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, Okay. The sign for the Rodriguez nightclub is misspelled Rodriguez at the end. That wasn't initially planned by him, but Anderson had misspelled it in the screenplay and decided it would be worthwhile to keep it in the final script as a joke. That's hilarious. I love it. <laughs> I, I like that. It's one of those like happy accidents that like it's kind of one of those things that you may not notice. Prior to finishing the film, Anderson sent a rough copy to New Line so they could cut the trailer. The rough cut was pirated and distributed before the release. That print had not cut out many of the explicit scenes, mm-hmm. which were eventually cut to, to cut down for the R rating. Mm-hmm. So that one had a lot more of the graphic stuff that was not included in the final film. Uh-oh. During Floyd Gondoli's pitch to Jack on switching to video, the actor playing the Colonel, Robert Ridgely, is laughing in the background. Anderson then blurred the shot so that he could hide him. Mm. during that moment hmm. the studio where Dirk and Reed sing you got the touch is the same studio where Rick Springfield recorded Jesse's girl okay the touch is actually a song from the 1986 film Transformers the movie which is also a fun coincidence because Wahlberg went on to appear in two of Michael Bay's live action Transformers movies okay when Eddie tells Jack he's a long way to get home he is not lying it is 33 miles from Torrance to Reseda so that's 90 minutes by bus he is not anywhere near where he lives. Buck sells a TK241 modification with the stereos. And if you wanted more evidence that Paul Thomas Anderson is a big, big nerd, TK421 is the designation of one of the stormtroopers Han and Luke attack after boarding the Death Star in Star Wars. And finally, the original oil painting of Dirk in the party scene, the blue background with him shirtless, sold for $500 on eBay in 2001. The owner then resold that painting in 2017 for $3,000. Huh. The other painting with the colorful background where he wears jeans sold in 2013 for $2,750. Right. Let's talk about awards. Awards. 
This film was nominated for three Academy Awards. Okay. Burt Reynolds for Best Supporting Actor. Mm-hmm. We talked about he lost to Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting. Mm-hmm. Julianne Moore for Best Supporting Actress. Okay. Clearly earned. She lost to Kim Basinger in L.A. Confidential. And I haven't seen that film. I have. I'm mad. Julianne Moore is so good. So much better. Mm -hmm. But I hate L.A. Confidential just as a movie. Mm -hmm. Finally, best original screenplay. Paul Thomas Anderson Mm -hmm. lost to Matt Damon and Ben Affleck for Goodwill Hunting. Okay. What else was in this category this year? The other nominees. Mark Andrus and James L. Brooks for As Good As It Gets. Woody Allen for Deconstructing Harry. Diana Fire. And Simon Beaufoy for The Full Monty. Yeah, that movie sucks. Um, okay, yeah. Boogie yeah. Night should have won. <laughs> I get it, though. I get it. I get it. Goodwill Hunting has, a, has more of the feel-good vibe. And culturally, like this movie, nobody was ready for this movie. <laughs> it, well, here's the thing. If we're going for the, the cultural vibe of the feel-good story, it's as good as it gets or it's Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. And the thing is, nobody wants as good as it gets to win for that. Because while as good as it gets deserves a nomination at this moment, like like it's warranted in that it's a great script. It's a good story. Those characters are great. It's nothing new. Goodwill Hunting was new in that moment. And yeah. they like the story of these two scrappy actors writing themselves an Oscar winner. That's that's the dream. Yeah. They love that story. It's it's the Rocky story all over again. It is it is one hundred percent the Rocky story. One hundred. I mean, the nomination is deserved. It's a beautiful story that's very well written, and you know we we know it to not have been a fluke at this point. So everyone keeps trying to say that's just a fluke. It was a fluke, wasn't y'all? Yeah, but this movie is so much better. Here's in. the thing, you know, it's been twenty years. We're looking at it this way. If Boogie Nights is one, we understand why Boogie Nights won. I understand why Goodwill Hunting won. That's how the cookie crumbled. It's okay. I'm not mad. I'm not mad about it. I understand. Nomination is warranted. We're happy. So long as warranted films get nominated, I need to stop being so mad when they don't win because we know how much of a crapshoot that is. Oh, my God. And, you know, we know how voting gets split and then we're fucked. But, like, we couldn't cut out Peter Cataneo for the full Monty and put Paul Thomas Anderson for a nomination for Best Director because holy shit, this movie. Who won for Best Director this year? James Cameron for Titanic. This? Oh, yeah, because it didn't get nominated for Boogie Nights. The writing Titanic sucks. Yeah, no. The, the writing's terrible. <laughs> okay, this is the Titanic year. It won everything else. Okay, yeah. Just. I don't care. I don't care. I'm not. Anyway. It's fine. Yeah, Paul Thomas Anderson was not going to win against James Cameron. He did no. not deserve. Here's the no. thing. Here's the thing. He's been not. It's fine. It's fine fine he's not lacking in recognition paul thomas anderson does not give a fuck <laughs> he is not lacking in recognition david it's no. fine but still i'm just like mm, i get it i don't I know academy it. it's a movie it's a movie about porn as paul thomas anderson would later explain because he was tired of explaining this movie it's a movie about a guy with a big dick there you go it's a movie about a guy with big dick so how many dicks are we gonna give this movie david? how many 13 inch schlongs are we gonna give this movie it's not perfect, but it's damn near close. So it's four and a half dicks. Four and a half dicks. It's yeah. So close. So close. I'm not there yet. It's four- because it's rough. It's a little over bloated. Just a little. And then that Burt Reynolds factor, which doesn't kill the movie, but left us wanting something it's, even better. It's so close. 
just yeah. can't it's just so close it's just four and a half dicks but for the movie that established somebody sure a lot of times those are like three star movies three and a half yeah like honest effort honest effort god damn to be this good so early on so four and a half yeah I am mad. I am mad about that. Four and a half. I'm, I'm not, not I'm not mad about the time I spent watching this film for a second time. No, and I would watch it again. That's that good. I would not watch it frequently. No, and not for the not for any of the sex at all. Like no. that's another thing. You could you could remove all the boobs and butts. You can remove yes. all the sex. Film's still good. And that that lets you know that the movie's not solely about porn. Nope. <laughs> I'm just going to watch Mark Wahlberg and John C. Riley sing terrible 80s songs. That's what I'm going to do. And and then run. Run on rooftops. What a fucking inspiration. So what are we what are we watching next? What's our next film? Well, if we were going to watch this and be like, wow, this is the beginning of something. Let's get really to the root of the beginning of something. We're going to go all the way back. We're going to go a year before this mm. to watch Wes Anderson's debut film. Ah, We're going to watch bottle rocket oh geez that was filmed here here's the thing we've seen the big early wes anderson films sure we haven't seen that one but we haven't seen bottle rocket this one i think is going to be even weirder for us because i don't think wes anderson really knew what he was doing just yet okay all right so until next time have a good movie Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.